1: Well, as you've been hearing on the news, NATO leaders are going to be meeting for an extraordinary summit in Brussels tomorrow. The top priority will be Russia's war in Ukraine and how far the alliance is willing to go to deter the Russian president. The summit will likely lead to some new commitments for military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. But many experts are weighing in, saying harsher measures that could be seen as direct military engagement with Russia remain off the table. Table. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau arrived in Belgium earlier today. He is going to spend the next couple of days meeting with the other world leaders. And Redmond Shannon joins us now from London for more on this. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. What can we expect? I know uh, the leaders are convening tomorrow. Is there anything on the Prime Minister's agenda or what's happening leading up to the summit?
2: Yes, well, today the Prime Minister will, for the second time, speak to the European Parliament. He did so in 2017. And he will do so at um, uh, about 9 a.m. Pacific time uh, today. Uh, In advance of that, he will speak to the uh, president of the European Parliament. But um, he will be expected to obviously speak about the war in Ukraine to the parliamentarians uh, in Brussels today, and um, on the agenda will no doubt be statements of solidarity with uh, the international community and uh, the European response to um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, Sanctions obviously will be big on the agenda and how the world can uh, perhaps ramp up or the Western um, response can ramp up those sanctions in any way possible. Um, energy is a big issue for Europe in particular, and less so for North American, uh, North American response. But uh, so many European nations rely so heavily on Russian oil and gas. In particular, the European Union's uh, biggest and richest member, Germany, has a huge reliance on that and the sanctions that have been put in place so far don't go the full way in terms of uh, excluding all Russian banks because they accept... Um, uh, there's an exception for Russian banks that deal in the energy sector because Germany has to pay for oil and gas. it is still getting from Russia. And the president of the european Parliament who who uh, Justin Trudeau will meet shortly, um, well, she said yesterday that Europe is in effect funding Russia's war by paying. For by paying for uh, its natural resources. So, getting Europe off oil and gas is not going to be easy from when it comes from Russia um, because it is next door and you can't just turn off the tap, especially when um, we're still in the colder months of the year. So, that's going to be a big issue and particularly for Central and Eastern European members of the European Union. So, Prime Minister Trudeau will speak about that but he will also speak about food security because um in uh, we expect that he will uh, address that topic at least because um Ukraine and Russia are huge producers of grains like wheat and uh, oil seeds a huge proportion of the global supply of these come from what is called the breadbasket of Europe Ukraine and and western Russia And if there are sanctions on Russia, obviously that impacts importing of those uh, to European countries and many uh, North African and uh, um, Middle Eastern countries too. And in particular, because Ukraine is at war and the ports are blocked up, there's no way of getting um, th- that uh, produce around the world and there is a huge problem with food security. That is something that Canada could potentially address. The prairies being Canada's breadbasket could potentially uh, be uh, a way for Europe to handle that situation and for other countries, particularly poor countries around the world, to handle that. So. That's what we can expect to uh, hear from the Prime Minister when he speaks to the European Parliament today.
1: And when the leaders convene and when they meet, you kind of touched on this as far as the sanctions that are in place right now. Do you think there's going to be a disagreement or there will be pressure on some of the leaders to increase those? But, But given what you just said, obviously, a lot of those repercussions also.
2: Yeah, it, it, you know, there's uh, the, the the efforts uh, over this week and today and in particular tomorrow with the NATO summit and the G7 summit will look to coordinate the response because different countries, because of where they are and because of their histories, uh, uh, have different priorities and how and what they want to do in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine countries that were formerly part of the soviet union like latvia lithuania and estonia they are part of nato and the eu they want a strong reaction and some of them or even there are calls for the no-fly zone that ukraine wants Uh, poland which uh, obviously was part was behind the iron curtain as well it wants a stronger response it is proposing potentially peacekeeping troops to go into ukraine now what, what's the difference between peacekeeping troops and fighting troops? Well, it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to decipher. And Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said today that peacekeeping troops coming from NATO countries would be going to war with Russia in a way because Russian forces are on the ground there, too. So it's a very difficult line to, um, to tread. And uh, finding a, a united front will be a challenge when you have so many competing interests um, within NATO, within the G7 and within the European Union.
1: And what do you think Canada's specific role will be, particularly in this summit?
2: Well, I think uh, Canada's uh, strong relationship with Ukraine will obviously um, be something that uh, will be played up by the Prime Minister. Um, I think that uh, there there could be a, um, a, a role for Canada to play within NATO to uh, perhaps mediate between different partners in terms of, of finding a common ground um, in terms of what the, the next step will be. Uh, as I mentioned, when it comes to food security, that's something where Canada could potentially step in, energy security perhaps less so. But um, I think there, as, as always in NATO, the United States will lead and others will follow, and the other main uh, partners here, countries here will probably be Germany, France, and Italy, because they are all members of the EU, of NATO, and of the G7. So expect those three European countries to perhaps take a leading role um, and and Canada perhaps less so. But uh, what happens behind closed doors, of course, uh, we're not privy to.
1: All right. So, well, Redmond, we will be watching, uh, as many will, to see what unfolds at this summit. Thank you so much for joining us and for giving us this preview.
2: Thank you, Jill. Have a great day.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Well, surging inflation has a number of Canadians concerned about stretching those dollars, especially when we're talking about keeping food on the table, grocery bills getting more and more expensive. Some polling from Ipsos, this was a survey conducted exclusively for Global News, shows that six in 10 Canadians say they are concerned they might not have enough money to feed their families. Well, joining us for more on this is Sean Simpson, the Vice President of Public Affairs with Ipsos. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, There's some interesting numbers and and some pretty disturbing numbers when we're talking about people being able to feed themselves and their families. So what did this poll find?
0: Well, some of these uh, statistics are startling, so brace yourself. Uh, We found that uh, 60% of Canadians are worried or concerned that they might not have enough money to feed their family. And that 60% is up 16 points Uh, from November when we last uh, conducted this poll. Moreover, those with children in the household are among the most likely to be concerned about their ability to feed their family. 68% of them are concerned about that.
1: And that does seem like a huge jump in, in not a very long period of time. It is.
0: Uh, It seems that that Canadians were sort of not prepared for um, inflationary times. They perhaps weren't prepared for rising interest rate environment. And uh, they're they're quite um, uneasy about the future, not just in Canada, but the world, of course, with the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, And I think all of this uncertainty is is causing um, worry and concern and anxiety to rise.
1: It looks like as well, the people that you surveyed, a good percentage of people are also concerned not only about food, but inflation and what that means for a whole range of everyday things.
0: That's right. Eighty five percent are concerned that inflation will make everyday things less affordable for them. We've already talked about food. The other key uh, sort of uh, area that people realize on a day to day basis is the price of gasoline. Every time you get in a car, every time you drive by a gas station, you're reminded that we're you know hovering around two dollars in many parts of the of the country, including in, in, in British Columbia. So 68 percent worried that they can't uh, afford, uh, they might not be able to afford gasoline. Uh, we've also got a, a significant chunk, 54%, who are concerned that they might not be able to afford a holiday this summer. Well, you might say, well, boo-hoo, you know, that's a luxury and not a not a necessity, but remember that last year we were in COVID times, many people didn't get a vacation. Certainly in 2020, very few took a vacation, and so, you know, mental health after three years of not vacationing likely deserves a vacation, but half of Canadians are worried that they they. They might not have enough money
1: to do it. Yeah, you're right. It might seem like a luxury, but given the circumstances, it's something so many people have been looking forward to. Uh, you also asked people kind of, did they sh- have they shifted their behavior or would they be able to shift their behavior to deal with this? And what did you find there?
0: Well, we found that uh, Canadians are roughly split uh, between being able to absorb uh, the rising cost of inflation uh, and, and not being able to do so. Uh, so only 11% say they can easily absorb the cost. Uh then we've got another thirty seven percent who say with some adjustments they can uh you know, absorb it, they just may have to give up a few things. On the other side of the coin, we've got twenty eight percent who say that with major changes they'll be able to figure it out. And then uh roughly twenty five percent say I'm tapped out. I can't do any more, costs will go up, I don't have more money to give, and so uh that's when necessities are, are going to um, are going to be in jeopardy.
1: And it also seems like people and and not that there would be a reason for, for this to stop, but people are kind of bracing for inflation to continue going up and for prices to keep getting more expensive.
0: They are. Uh, I mean, they're seeing the writing on the wall, and that is uh, a situation in Canada uh, that is being impacted by uh, not just COVID nineteen anymore, but also the situation in Ukraine, and that's driven uh, oil prices higher. Um, you know, it's a it's sort of a net benefit for Canada because of our own gas industry, but it takes a long time for that to trickle down to the average consumer, uh, and and so they're they're worried that they might not be able to uh, keep up with the uh, with as quickly as prices are rising. They won't be able to adjust uh, fast enough three quarters feel that way Uh, younger people disproportionately feeling the pinch they were most impacted uh, by COVID-19 the economic impact of it that is with job losses and being out of work so yet another um, uh, you know sort of strike or burden uh, for for our youngest uh, citizens to bear.
1: All right. Well, not uh, happy findings for sure, but certainly I think a lot of people will relate with what those findings are. Sean, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, turning our focus now to what is happening with BC Salmon, a coalition of Canadian groups is now calling on Alaska's governor to stop the harvest of Canadian-bound salmon. The Watershed Watch, Watch Salmon Society and three other groups have all written a letter to Governor Mike Dunleavy at him to this report, it's a report that shows Alaskan boats are intercepting hundreds of thousands of Canadian-origin sockeye. Well, here to talk more about this is Greg Taylor, consultant and fisheries advisor for Watershed Watch Salmon Society, as well as the Skeenote Wild Conservation Trust. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you
3: for having me, uh, Jill.
1: What is the main issue then with the salmon? Uh, these, uh, I think the number was somewhere around 650,000 of the salmon being intercepted.
3: Well, uh, Jill, that 650,000 number is just the tip of the iceberg. Those are just the fish we know about because Alaska provides those numbers on the sockeye. Co-migrating uh, with those sockeye is hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, pink salmon, chum salmon, chinook salmon, steelhead, they're all co-migrating through the same water, through those same fisheries. It's just that we, uh, Alaska is not, does not provide those numbers because under the treaty, they're not required to do so. So this issue is much, much bigger than the number that's given out.
1: So what would you like Alaska to do or what change do you think is necessary
3: well, why we're going straight to the governor is because we realize that expecting the Canadian government or the Pacific Salmon Treaty to deal with this is both naive and um, and uh, we have low expectations of uh, any success on those routes. However, with the governor, we're hoping to get a meeting with the governor to have a, have a reasonable discussion with them, telling them about what the impact, his fisheries having on uh, Canadian salmon. And to remind them, um, because, believe me, I've worked up in Alaska for years. Alaskans care about salmon. So we need to remind them that if these were Alaskan salmon, this would not be happening. This Alaska does not manage their own salmon this way. Second, we need to tell them that we have a solution that allows Alaska to keep on harvesting all its own salmon while protecting ours. And finally, I think there always has to be a bit of a stick. Alaska uh, markets, it's billions of dollars of salmon it produces each year under a sustainability label. And this challenges that commitment to their consumers. So I think there's a reasonable discussion that we had with the governor and hopefully make some progress on this issue.
1: And when you say uh, with the second point there, there is a way that Alaskan fishermen can still harvest uh, all of the salmon while still protecting Canadian salmon. How, how is that possible?
3: Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, but actually it's uh, all to do with geography. The fishery we're most concerned about is on the far outside of the panhandle. There's no Alaskan uh, salmon stocks out there. All those are passing stocks. They're all going into the interior of the Panhandle, like around Catch Can area. So, if those forty or fifty boats out of the two hundred that fish just join their colleagues on the inside, catching their fish in there, catching all little Asken fish, that's where it's all going. Anyways, it's not going to Canada. Um, then the uh, Canadian fish, fish, salmon passing down that corridor could uh, allow be allowed to uh, migrate freely. So this could, this is easily a win-win solution. This is, in terms of the whole Alaskan seafood industry or salmon industry, this is so small to be inconceivably small uh, issue. So it is really an addressable one and one that does not cost Alaska anything.
1: I know that, Except, oh,
3: except okay. in lost Canadian salmon.
1: <laughs> uh, your groups have written to the governor, and like you said, uh, the, this coalition of groups wants to speak uh, with the governor directly. Uh, it seems like it would be something that the DFO would be or should be involved in. Uh, what role, if any, is the DFO playing in this?
3: Well, DFO um, has has kicked it up to the Canadian government, which has kicked it up to external affairs. So as you can imagine, the number of issues external affairs is dealing with in the United States, from uh, EV cars to softwood lumber to uh, dairy quotas, this is not going to raise a rise to the prominence that it needs to do for British Columbia. So we have little expectation Canada is actually going to take the bull by the horns on this one. That's why we have to look at uh, different av- avenues to progress, to move this issue forward. Uh,
1: do you think then you can get the ear of the Alaska governor? Is the, is the governor going to pay attention to, to groups like yours instead of, say, external affairs?
3: Uh, well, the only thing we can hope for is, I like I said before, i worked in Alaska for many, many years. And Alaska really cares about its fish, really cares about its resources, cares about its fishermen, um, I think there's possible possibility of having a reasonable discussion with the Alaskans on this issue, and if the governor really knew the background uh, and the science behind it, maybe he might be willing to uh, move forward. Maybe that's on our behalf. That's a bit naive, but it is uh, an avenue we can move forward. Uh, waiting for the government of Canada or the Pacific Salmon Treaty to make a move would be just foolish. So We're trying to be proactive. And the other thing is, as I said before, there is a stick. There is a cost to Alaska if they keep on going down this road. They are um, compromising their commitment to their consumers.
1: Right. And do do you think, though, if if they did have those concerns or if they shared the concerns that you and your group has, uh, wouldn't they have moved on this earlier or wouldn't they have at least addressed this earlier?
3: Well, to be frank, um, until we did our studies and did our reports and pulled it all together, it's never been pulled together in this kind of format that shows that uh, the impact this is having on British Columbian salmon right from north, right down to a few fish outside Nanaimo or Campbell River, that 45% of the Chinook uh, going there is being caught, uh, of the total catch uh, going to those areas, being caught in Alaska. People didn't know that. Um, and so people are very much unaware of the impact of this fishery, and also, you know, Canada is spending hundreds of millions of dollars, plus the commitment of thousands of volunteers and uh, and First Nations to recover our salmon. So, this such investments don't make a lot of sense if we're just becoming a spawning ground for the uh, for the Alaskan, uh, for forty or fifty Alaskan fishermen. So I think there is a reason, discuss reasonable discussion to be had.
1: And here we are. So we're getting closer to the end of March. Do you think anything could possibly be done before the fishing season, before this summer? Uh,
3: I don't. I don't. I don't believe that all of a sudden we're going to turn this around. And uh, and since we did our reports in January, brought our reports in January, that's just going to be a, a slog. This is going to be uh, an issue that we're, we're going to take on, and we're going to win. We're, it's one of those issues where we are right on, and Canada is right, and, and, and um, I think we do have some influence in terms of the marketplace to move it forward. Again, uh, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen in a couple of months, but I think we will make, in the end, we will make, uh, have some success.
1: All right. Well, we will wait and be watching to see what happens next. Greg Taylor, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you, Joel. Enjoyed it. Have a good morning.
1: All right. You too. That is Greg Taylor, consultant and fisheries advisor for Watershed Watch Salmon Society and Skina Wild Conservation Trust.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Jill Bennett, sitting in for Simi this week. Well, as you know, as we've been talking about, one of the major proposals in the Liberal NDP agreement that was announced yesterday is to create a national dental care program specifically targeted at lower-income Canadians. The idea would be first, children under the age of 12 that don't have adequate access to dental care would be included in this. It would then go to people 18 and And then people, people who are 18 seniors, people living with disabilities by 2023 and to be fully implemented by 2025. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. And joining us to do that is Michelle Bro, head of advocacy and governance at the Canadian Dental Association. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Hi, Jill. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh,
1: what is, first? Uh, we we have a few details on what this would look like if it is implemented, uh, as as we understand it, it could be. What is your first reaction to this idea?
4: So, uh, oral health is a vital part of overall health, um, and that's why at Canadian Dental Association. We we think that Canadians have a right to good oral health, and we've long supported. Uh, efforts to improve access to dental care, to improve the oral health of Canadians, particularly those that need it most. Uh, you mentioned low-income uh, families, uh, those living with disabilities, seniors, children, uh, etc. Um, that's why for the past number of years, we've long recommended the single best way to improve uh, access to dental care improve Canadians' oral health is to invest in the existing provincial and territorial programs uh, that are quite woefully underfunded, Uh, and financed almost exclusively by provincial governments, the federal contribution is is pretty negligible. Uh, And that would actually be a great way to get uh, funding uh, directly into programs that can help Canadians uh, maintain and improve their oral health. So we were a bit surprised by yesterday's uh, announcement that the federal government is considering a new large-scale program at the federal level. Uh, It's going to be important uh, going forward to ensure that any sort of initiatives stemming from that commitment don't disrupt access to care For the the fairly large majority of Canadians that already have access to care, particularly through uh, employer-sponsored plans, we look forward to collaborating with the government uh, and working closely with them on on implementing this. Uh, But I I think that's kind of where we're at today.
1: And looking at those numbers, so Canada has a population of about 38 million. From what I understand, or the number I saw, was that about 6.5 million Canadians don't have access to dental care. Does that sound like the right number?
2: Th-
4: that number, I-, I believe, stems from the the Parliamentary Budget Officer's uh, report on the existing NDP proposal, uh, which dates back a couple of years. I-, I think some of the costing might have been done pre-pandemic. So uh, there might have been, obviously, shifts in the last two years uh, as folks have gone through various uh, uh, employment changes and what have you.
1: So, but if we are talking about six and a half million Canadians, and like you said, this is something that is delivered currently on the provincial level, it does seem like it makes more sense to focus on what's happening at a provincial level and whatever needs to be done. If there, if there are people, which clearly there are, who don't have access to dental care, finding ways to make sure they have access rather than spending what will likely become billions on a national national program.
4: It, it, exactly. Um, and, you know, there's obviously jurisdictional issues whenever you get involved in healthcare. But I think our concern here, it, it's great that the federal government uh, really wants to better address the oral health needs of Canadians. But there's programs from coast to coast uh, that have existed for years, in some cases for decades, uh, that address the unique needs and challenges of, of different provinces, populations when it comes to oral health and dental care. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's uh, if we want to make significant efforts on this, that's great. Uh, But let's use these existing mechanisms. Let's make sure that they're sustainable. Right now, a lot of them are very underfunded uh, because the province is the only one contributing. There's no federal contributions. Uh, So let's get some federal funding flowing into those programs rather than creating something big and new at the federal level. uh, And let's look at making them sustainable and hopefully enhancing them to cover as many of those six million people as possible.
1: Uh, And also taking a page. So from that, the NDP platform on this or the program, the, the proposal on this. So anybody with a family income of less than $90,000 that doesn't have dental insurance would be eligible for coverage. And then anybody where the dental fees, dental fees so would be fully covered by the government for any person or family with an income of less than $70,000. Are there concerns that if the government is paying for these services, if, a, if the government payment isn't as much as what the private insurance payment is, are there concerns that dentists wouldn't want to take on those patients?
4: So I, I think dentists across Canada are really committed to to uh, treating and, and supporting their patients. Um, right now, uh, a lot of the existing uh, public programs at the provincial level do, uh, as you mentioned, reimburse at quite low rates. In some cases, less than the cost of actually performing treatment. Dentists are still providing that treatment. It, you know, they they consider it an obligation to to treat their patients and, and help provide. Uh, better oral health care, uh, but that 's obviously something that can become a, an issue in terms of enabling access to care in the long run um, that 's that's why frankly, you know, we already have these these programs across the country let's make sure that they work first and foremost for the people that are already eligible for them um, and and then go from there in, in terms of looking to enhance them and expand the coverage.
1: Right, but but dentists are also doing this. This is their livelihood and their profession, and I I don't think any anybody begrudges them that they're they're making a living by doing this. So if they tinkered, if the government was to tinker with the program so much that suddenly there were a whole a much bigger group of people that were getting government payments for dental care, and like you said, if some of those rates don't even cover the cost of the work, that's going to put dentists in a in a strange position, isn't it? Because then they're not going to be making money from from doing their job.
4: I, I think those are those are uh, quite legitimate concerns. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, dentists will be there to work with Canadians to, to help make sure that uh, uh, Canada has, you know, across the board, uh, really good uh, oral health. Um, that's why we're really hoping to work closely with the government as they, they try to work out some of the details of what they're proposing, uh, given only uh, a few seem to have trickled out. Uh, yesterday. Um, but you're, you're right that it's important that the system function and work uh, at a practical level. Uh, over the last few years, especially with the pandemic, there's been a lot of increasing cost pressures. Uh, dentists have faced, whether that's uh, office renovations and extra PPE in order to to make sure that it's a safe working environment for, for their staff and for patients uh, with the pandemic, whether that's labor shortages starting to hit, especially when it comes to dental assistance. Uh, so there's a lot of different factors going on uh, when it comes to this. Um, and again, uh, it's a question of there's already programs from coast to coast uh, that are meeting the needs of whether it's Canadians living with disabilities, whether it's children, whether it's seniors. Uh, let's try to work within that existing framework. Let's get the money delivered through those programs um, and, and make them work well uh, and, and look at expanding groups that are still missing coverage and that need uh, better access to dental care. Uh, let's not uh, create a big new program uh, in Ottawa um, that, you know, might might be a little bit more disruptive than we want it to be.
1: Right. But if there are already programs that are meeting the needs of people that don't have private dental coverage, then why do we need to, this at all? Then what, what? where is that gap then? And why do we still have the six and a half million Canadians who don't have dental care?
4: I, I, I think a big factor here is that right now for these uh, existing uh, public uh, dental care programs that are run by provinces and territories, they're almost entirely funded by provincial governments. Uh, the, the federal government doesn't really fund dental care in Canada. There's a few small exceptions. Uh, if you're getting dental care done in a hospital, for example, uh, but the federal government hasn't really stepped up to the table when it comes to uh, oral health care. Uh, that's why our recommendation uh, it, for for the last number of years has been, if the federal government wants to start working on improving uh, access to dental care in Canada, uh, step up to the table, uh, start investing in these programs, you, you know, p- kind of, pay the price of admission uh, if, if they want to start entering uh, the zone uh, and, and make those programs work. So I, I think it's great news uh, yesterday that the federal government really wants to uh, uh, work on this, this issue, really wants to to help Canadians achieve better oral health, uh, but uh, there's, there's probably some ways of going about doing that that are better than others.
1: Alright, uh, Michelle Bro, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. It was really great to talk to you about this.
0: Thanks for having
1: Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, a new study, it has been put out by the Fraser Institute in Vancouver. It highlights the fact that the door could open for certain groups outside of Canada to claim certain rights inside Canada, including rights of title and other rights that are protected by the Constitution, again, within Canada's border. Well, joining us now is Dwight Newman, law professor at the University of Saskatchewan, to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here.
5: Oh, I'm happy to join you.
1: Uh, This all stems from a court decision that didn't get a ton of attention. I think we were all kind of preoccupied with the pandemic and what was happening around the globe. But can you talk a little bit about what was at the core of this uh, involving uh, Washington State and hunting rights here in B.C.?
5: Indeed. So it was a hunting rights decision um, from the Supreme Court of Canada early last year. Um, But of course, everyone was uh, paying more attention to the pandemic at the time. And essentially, um, someone from the uh, Lakes tribe in Washington state, uh, which does derive um, from uh, Uh, a nation that used to be present in Canada, um, uh, had uh, come and hunted an elk in British Columbia as a test case um, uh, in order to see essentially whether there could be a Section 35 Aboriginal rights claim, Section 35 of Canada's Constitution, an Aboriginal rights claim in Canadian territory by someone from a community no longer present in Canada. And it worked its way up through the courts, and the Supreme Court of Canada ultimately interpreted Section 35 of the Constitution, which protects the rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada to potentially um, permit, and in this case, to permit a rights claim by someone located outside of Canada from a community now located outside of Canada.
1: And was the reason given then because this was a community that has roots to BC or roots to Canada, that's why they still were able to, to lay claim or to come under Section 35?
5: Well, it's essentially that they were historically exercising the, the right in Canada um, and uh, they put the claim essentially in the same way uh, that a group that would be located in Canada uh, could put that group. Um, so it, it wouldn't necessarily even be that they have to have been um, uh, living in Canada, but if they had been exercising a right in Canada in the past, uh, this decision would seem to uh, to permit that to be claimed.
1: So, does this set a precedent then, or open the door for other groups, say, in other parts of the United States, uh, uh, treating it more kind of as as the border is now North America, not Canada? Um,
5: in some senses, yes. Um, and uh, that's a key significance of the decision and why it has uh, very significant implications. Section 35's reference to Aboriginal peoples of Canada hadn't been interpreted before in the courts, and the Supreme Court of Canada, now having spoken to that, uh, says in essence that uh, there can be a rights claim in Canada uh, by uh, a group not located in Canada if they meet the uh, the legal tests for that. And so, all along the Canadian-American border, as well. As the Canada Greenland border um, there have been historic connections and in many senses then uh, the border does not have the same relevance as uh, as it might have had before this decision uh, for those groups that uh, traditionally exercised rights in Canada uh, this doesn't say that groups with no connection to Canada can begin making uh, claims in Canada but those that uh, that historically operated uh, across a border that didn't exist in the past um, uh, may continue uh, now to do so so uh, the court has some little qualifications on that, um, but uh, I suggest in the study that those uh, aren't uh, aren't going to limit it very much.
1: And when you say groups that meet the legal test, is it still a, a, a difficult legal test to, to meet as far as if you were, if you saw this ruling and you are one of these groups that's now outside of Canada, how difficult would it be then to try and, and make that argument?
5: Um, Well, I mean, an Aboriginal title case is a challenging case uh, to put forward in terms of the evidence that the courts demand on that. Um, Similarly, many Aboriginal rights cases can be challenging, but we certainly are seeing groups successfully put those claims. Uh, A sufficiently motivated group could uh, could put such a claim in the Canadian courts. There are other implications as well, though, that as soon as there is a uh, a credible claim of which governments have actual or constructive knowledge, meaning that they know or ought to know about it, um, then the duty to consult can kick in based on a right that hasn't yet uh, been agreed to in Canada, either by governments or, uh, or uh, established in the courts. It still gives rise to some obligations on governments. And so the, the precedent has implications even where groups aren't in a position to litigate immediately upon those.
1: What do you think this could mean also then to Indigenous groups in Canada that are maybe fighting for for rights or fighting for title, uh, thinking that they were only fighting within Canada and now may have other groups that that are fighting for the same thing?
5: Indeed, Uh, there are some possible implications and challenging ones there. Uh, I'll I'll say Indigenous groups uh, at some level see the decision very favourably because it is responding to... Uh, a colonial border as uh, in terms of saying, well, that border wasn't here before, so why should it continue to have effects? But where it's sort of a a one-way effect into Canada right now, um, it does mean that uh, there would be increased instances of overlapping claims, uh, which have been a very challenging situation in uh, some contexts in terms of getting a resolution on um, modern treaties to resolve um, uh, land rights claims or other Aboriginal rights claims.
1: And I would imagine, too, because we're talking about a Supreme Court of Canada decision, this will deal with groups laying claims in Canada, but it's not as though it would then be vice versa and a Canadian group or a group somewhere else could lay claims, say, in the United States.
5: Exactly, yes. I didn't make that quite clear in my uh, last response, but uh, it is sort of a one-way decision at this point uh, where groups could make claims in Canada based under the Canadian Constitution. Uh, There isn't a similar constitutional clause in the United States protecting uh, Indigenous rights. So Canadian... uh, Uh, based Indigenous communities that may well have had historic um, uh, uses of land in the United States don't have any immediate legal basis to pursue those based on a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada that would take uh, development in American law.
1: All right. Well, Dwight, thank you so much for joining us and uh, breaking down this Supreme Court of Canada ruling and what the implications could potentially be. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show today.
5: Well, thank you for having me.